Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. When I left, it was the saddest day of my life. I mean, I cried my eyes out. It was like leaving a family. I remember kind of the farewell party at, at Recurrent, and it was, it was like my greatest failure almost. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, happy Thursday, Solar Warriors. Welcome back to our long-form version of Suncast. I am super delighted to have you tune in yet again to explore the career and lessons learned from another clean energy founder and investor to inspire and inform your own journey and growth. If you're new to Suncast, thank you for joining us. And I encourage you to check out the previous episode with today's guest, Sheldon Kimber, where you can learn more about some of the fundamental elements of how he's building his utility scale solar power company, Intersect Power. That was episode 229. And we should be linking to it here in the podcast app that you're using, but certainly over on my Suncast, you can get a link to that. If you just search 229, you'll find it. It wasn't that long ago. In that episode, Sheldon gave valuable insight into some of the nuanced topics that he faces as a solar developer. Things like how to define merchant and hedge, value of building merchant projects for solar, and what happens to the tail end of market contracts for these solar power projects. Well, many of you who really know me know that I was once in the music industry. And if you're a music buff like me, then you're no doubt familiar with the sophomore slump. The idea is that it's often very hard for an artist to have a massive hit with their debut album, then follow it with anything equally or more compelling in their second or sophomore album. But in statistics, it can better be explained as simply a regression to the mean. This happens beyond the recording studios and stages of music, of course, and it's a tale as old as Silicon Valley itself for serial entrepreneurs. Lest you think I'm being too critical, I'm no Fairweather Johnson about this topic. I've studied the effect both in the music and energy industries, and we've talked about it here in past episodes of Suncast. Some notable acts, however, have no doubt been able to overcome this invisible barrier and produce an impressive second act in their careers. Sheldon Kimber seems to share DNA with greats like Nirvana, Black Sabbath, and Led Zeppelin, coming out swinging with an impressive follow-up to what was arguably a blockbuster hit in their first appearance on the big stage. Well, after brief stints as a consultant at Accenture and then energy finance manager with Calpine, Sheldon did what most 20-somethings looking to transition into a senior role did in finance. He went back to get his MBA. In today's conversation, Sheldon and I dig into the fortuitous route from his MBA to joining the very much a startup recurrent power in the mid-2000s and his ride to the top of the solar industry charts, helping make recurrent one of the most respected and valuable solar businesses of the last decade. I really enjoyed hearing about Sheldon's journey, introspection, and decisions around how he'd re-enter the work world after having earned enough with recurrence exit to really never consider 
building another company or working that hard again. I also really appreciate his candor here, exploring the post-exit reality, the existential crises and sense of purpose or lack thereof that often accompanies great success. Well, as some of you already know, and of course I foreshadowed, Sheldon's story is far from over. His sophomore startup, Intersect Power, is anything but sophomoric and it's firing on all cylinders right now. What's driving it? Where does he go now? Stay tuned as we dig into today's entrepreneurial journey. Remember, you can always find resources and learn more about today's guest, recommendations, book links, and more than 250 other founders' stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Warriors, if you are an avid listener of Suncast, then the voice on the other end of the line today is going to be no stranger to you because you would have heard episode 229, where my esteemed friend and colleague Christian Rosalind interviewed Sheldon Kimber at the Podcast Lounge in Salt Lake City last year. I want to do a follow-up with Sheldon because I jealously didn't get a chance to have a one-to-one interaction with him. So today, I'm going to welcome and have a long discussion with Sheldon Kimber, the CEO and Founder of Intersect Power. Sheldon, welcome to the show. Hey, Nico. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, man. Good to have you back. And even though I think uh, for most of uh, the folks that came to the podcast lounge, they didn't really consider themselves having been on Suncast. It's, it, was a, it was a nice uh, follow-up. But, you know, you've had a remarkable career. I'll, I'll hit some of the highlights here real quick, and then we'll jump into how this all came about. For most who have followed your career, they know you as, you know, one of the guys, the early guys into recurrent you went in, you know, at a time where Recurrent was a very young company and would love to hear more about that. But you started in the finance role and grew into ultimately being chief operating officer through 2014 and, you know, helped Recurrent grow into one of the most dominant and, and uh, prominent developers of solar power in the United States. Before that, you spent time in power in, in a slightly different way. <laughs> you worked at Calpine and investing in Goldman Sachs and Accenture. And you also attended UC Berkeley, where a number of listeners are, are alum. So the arc of your career is one that I find particularly intriguing. And not only that, but the, the, what I would call the, the sophomore act. <laughs> if, you look, if you think about it from a, um, like a music perspective, uh, most folks that come out of the gun uh, with, their, you know, with a big hit as their first act, as it were, if we, if we consider that recurrent kind of flop on their sophomore act. And that's true for many of us. Uh, so I find it particularly intriguing that Intersect Power, which is kind of your follow-on to your time at Recurrent, is in fact doing remarkably well. But you weren't always specifically focused on clean energy. So I'd love in the outset here, if you'd give us a little insight into that spark of a moment where solar power or clean energy as a topic came into your worldview you know, when did you really decide that was how and where you're going to focus your career? Like a lot of things, I'm not sure that it was any any one moment, but uh, certainly as the moments were happening, I'm not sure it was any one moment. I think, you know, in retrospect, I came out of uh, of, of college having done my thesis, if you will, my, my undergrad thesis in regulatory economics um, and written quite a bit on kind of regulatory economics in the um, fiber industry, in the um, fiber optics industry. Um, as it was deregulating. And as part of that, you know, wound up reading a lot about sort of, you know, Ken Lay and, and, and um, 
his work on you know deregulating the gas industry, uh, the interstate transmission pipelines, those sorts of things, and so got really into sort of you know the the state of regulated industries and 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 infrastructure. But moved to California really thinking I would be in tech. Then you get into consulting and you get moved around to different different areas and and kind of found a passion for valuation of power plants. <laughs> At the time, there was a lot of merchant power being done, so. I did a lot of work on power price forecasting, doing a lot of like dispatch modeling, um, you know, financial modeling for the valuation of assets. Um, at the time, it was sort of the days of, F- of Enron. So there was a lot of like fairly complicated commodity structuring, you know, prepaid deals, structured credit deals, um, all that kind of stuff. And I found the complexity to be really interesting. So that was kind of when I really sort of fell in love with the power industry. So I've been at, I've been at that you know, realistically, all my professional life. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, my, my wife actually, um, while I was working on the gas fired side at Calpine, my wife, after graduating in the late nineties, went to work for Dan Sugar at Powerlight. So, you know, my wife is uh, a really serious, uh, as Dan would say, you know, solar OG. Um, she's, she's got the real chops um, back when, Back when solar didn't really make you a lot of money, and it, it you know, and it and it was a, a labor of love um, more than anything, and 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 a passion, and she had that in spades. And so, uh, you know, I I remember distinctly um, coming from the gas powered industry, uh, sitting at uh, holiday parties at Powerlight, one of which was on a, a Hornblower cruise, and I remember adamantly having a, a conversation with uh, with with Sugar about, you know, when is the solar industry going to stop selling systems and start selling megawatt hours? And this was like, I think this was, you know, 2001 or something like that. And, uh, you know, um, and here we are. So uh, that's not because I'm some sort of, you know, genius or innovator. That's just because I, you know, was already in the business of selling megawatt hours. And it seemed it seemed pretty obvious. So, um, so that, that's, that was really my first interaction with solar. And, and I kind of knew from the start getting into electric power that I wanted to be part of, you know, getting rid of, you know, dirty power plants. I mean, believe it or not, even back in the early 2000s, Calpine was repowering America with clean natural gas, right? <laughs> so when you looked at the, the carbon profile, if you will, and not just the carbon, but the knocks and socks, right? Because acid rain and things were, were, you know, pretty big issues in the 90s, right? So when you looked at all of that, it really was a clean technology. I mean, obviously, things have changed very, very quickly. But to some degree, I've always been interested in, in quote, unquote, clean power. It's just that definition has morphed quite, you know, quite a bit. I didn't know the background in particular, and I love that that story with Suge. I feel like if you uh, if you have cut your teeth in California solar and you don't have a good Suge story, you got to keep working on that because <laughs> it's just waiting. It's waiting there for you. I'm really amazed uh, to hear that your wife as well is uh, a solar OG. I didn't know that either. So here we go, learning a whole lot more. One of the things that I continually say from the platform of Suncast, and in particular to anyone who will listen that is young in the in their career is the incredible power of knowledge and macro understanding of working at a big company and in particular whether or not you're interested in power you know if you're interested in consumer goods or marketing go to procter and gamble and, and work your way around their their programs right if you're interested in product uh, at an industrial level, go to ge 
and go through their leadership training. I, the you know you were at some early firms like uh, earlier in your career firms like Accenture that give you good formation. Uh, and I find it really intriguing that uh, not only did you come out of college with this economic understanding of how the power markets work, but you ended uh, you landed at Calpine, which comes to the point that I always make is if you really want to own and run a successful solar company, you've got to understand the power markets. And I find that of the thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of solar companies in the U.S. right now, there's a small percentage that actually understand the power markets. The rest are, you know, uh, they're selling some eco-friendly solution that they believe is their contribution to, uh, <laughs> to and, and they're not wrong, but their contribution to sustainability. Um, but, but you gotta, you, I mean, just the idea of selling megawatt hours uh, as a fundamental practice of how the power markets work is something that in my view is missing in the, in the general training of those who would want to sort of help elevate solar as, and any other, you know, really any other energy technology, clean or otherwise, uh, as, as something that's going to scale and beat fossil fuels. My question was Calpine on the radar for you. Was it a target or did you, like, how did you end up there and, uh, and get, get really into the whole power trading and wrapping your head around these, the way these contracts work? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Calpine, Calpine at the time, you, ha- you have to understand was, was one of the darlings of the equity markets, right? I mean, Calpine, Enron, Dynegy, you know, within energy, these were these were the fast moving, innovative, you know, companies, right? They were doing, they were changing the world. They were, you know, they they were that there weren't there weren't renewables companies, right? And and they were they were they were repowering America. They were, you know, the the build out of natural gas fired generation through the late nineties and into the two thousands was one of the largest infrastructure build outs probably in the history of this country, right? And and you know, yes. Was it an overbuild? Absolutely. Right. Just like everything, the capital markets, you know, loosen up and, you know, uh, there's, 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 you know, infrastructure tends to overshoot and undershoot and overshoot. That's, that's what commodity markets are all about. Um, but, but, you know, so yeah, Calpine was on the radar, you know, I, I never intended to be a banker or a consultant, you know, my entire career. Um, I got in having, you know, I, I really, really valued, my experience in undergrad, which was uh, a liberal art, a liberal arts education, so I have you know degree in economics and you know uh, a lot of math from uh, from uh, from Kenyon College, which um, was an incredible experience. But you know it doesn't necessarily give you you know the heavy Excel and PowerPoint and you know the internships at big businesses and things like that. And so coming out doing strategy consulting you know, a lot of valuation, a lot of heavy Excel for a couple of years was, was just a great boot camp. So, so yeah, I, I firmly agree with you. you you've got to do your time, right? I think a lot of people come out these days and they, they, they buy the vision of like, you know, I'm the whatever, Steve Jobs is solar, you know, and I'm just going to go start a company and it's all going to, you know, all going to flow from there. But I, I, you know, I ground, I may be pretty young for having, you know, done a lot of the things I've done, but at the same time, I spent a very long time grinding it out for other people <laughs> at big companies, you know, learning. Um, and I, I think that's pretty pivotal and pretty critical. I want to actually talk about the jump from Calpine to Recurrent. Um, you know, Recurrent, for those unfamiliar, uh, was one of those companies that within the Bay Area had a certain level of like intrigue and mystique. When I was starting my solar company, I remember uh, you guys winning the, um, the Sunset uh, Water Reservoir 
that time, one of the largest projects in the U.S., five megawatts, five whole megawatts. I think the best part of it was that it was uh, what was then considered a really amazing um, price per megawatt hour <laughs> north of 20. And we love to have those types of deals now. But how did you find yourself in recurrent, you know, working on the finance side of the business? And can you walk me through uh, not only just sort of your introduction and finding yourself inside of that of that business, but growing to be the the chief operating officer of the company. Sure. So so I mean, so it, it actually starts out with uh, like 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 many good stories with with um with with sort of failure and frustration. I uh, you know toward the end of the Calpine run, I mean, I, I I got quite a bit of experience at Calpine, thrown into the fire doing deals at a very young age. In my mid twenties, I was doing you know I was doing some of my own deals and getting a ton of experience, and so. Um, that was, I, I came out with a huge amount of interest or, or I think expertise for my age in structured finance and in commodities. And, um, we'll always be thankful to Calpine for that. I, I, I left to go to business school because frankly, Calpine was on the brink of bankruptcy and ultimately did go into bankruptcy six months after I left the, the, so I went to business school at Berkeley and then, um, you know, two things. One, I, I when I went to business school, I was just going to do something completely different because this whole energy thing, particularly on the development side, was just too much stress, too much up and down. You know, <laughs> um, and and I didn't want that. Uh, so maybe I was going to go work at Google or something. And uh, and then the strangest thing happened. You know, I got got there and I found a whole cohort of people that were really interested in energy and clean tech, and they kept saying, "Wow, you know, you have this amazingly relevant background." You know tell us more about how you project finance and could it be done on a solar plant? And, you know, and so I kind of pivoted and said, okay, well, you know, let me, let me go and, um, and go back into energy. And then I went and did a summer with Goldman thinking, okay, energy finance, structured finance, like, you know, and Goldman, Goldman is kind of the, it's, it's the pinnacle of jobs to be quite honest. It's at the time, certainly it was sort of the pinnacle of jobs you could get coming out of, business school, right? It was one of the hardest jobs to get and, and, and lowest acceptance rates. It's the Google of finance. And so, you know, went and did that. I got an offer from them. And then my wife said, we're not moving to New York. <laughs> and, and then she said, and then they offered me a job, uh, more commodity structured stuff in, in, in Houston. And then we went to Houston and checked it out and she said, we're not moving to Houston. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, it was, uh, so I basically turned down Goldman didn't have a job and, and got into, you know, the early spring of my final year and most people had jobs and, uh, you know, and then, and then this guy came in to speak. This was, this was, I think in January of 2007, this guy came in to speak at one of my like lecture series classes about this company that they were starting, uh, named, uh, electric roof. And, um, and that person was Arno Harris, who's, uh, was the CEO. Yeah. And, and I just peppered him with all these questions about, you know, do you, do you understand how to finance this stuff? Are you going to, you know, like lease financing questions and like, and afterward he sort of said, Hey, you want to go get a beer? And, uh, and we went out and chatted and, uh, and ultimately, um, I joined recurrent as, you know, with, with the first group of hires two weeks before we really took off, um, as a real company. You know, and then and then Arno and I kind of recapitalized the company when when you know Electric Roof was ultimately turned into Recurrent, and then and then um, uh, and that happened right around the time I joined, and then 
And then, you know, at first it was focused on being kind of a Sun Edison for REITs and, and institutional property holders. Arno and I really in, you know, within the first year saw the writing on the wall and began to pivot it to utility scale. And then when we got the Hudson Clean Energy investment, um, you know, about a year in, uh, he and I kind of took out the founders or, or, or some of because it had been founded kind of internal to a, to a, a venture company. And, um, and so several of those founders weren't actually even working for the company. We bought those folks out and, and then we built the company from there. When you say that you saw the writing on the wall around that structure of like the Sun Edison for REITs, what was the writing that you saw? Well, the writing was just, was simply that, that, you know, CNI Solar sat in, in the middle of the range, right? So, and, and Resi at the time too, it was, it was too small to support the various diligence and legal and other structuring costs to use project financing, right? Project financing as a tool is typically done on very large infrastructure type projects, right? And so you you would, anytime you did that form of financing, you would totally crush the economics of a project because you just weigh it down with too much cost. And so you just look at that that model back then, and there was just too much friction, you know. And now I think people still talk about the the cost of customer acquisition and finance, and and even now it's still pretty high relative to the margins that can be made on that scale of project. And so, you know, I've thought for a long time that Resi and even small commercial, you know, the the, the point at which that will really take off, and I've said this in public in numerous occasions, is when the financing is when it becomes cheap enough that the financing is almost like credit card finance, right? You just put it on your credit card. And, you know, if you're a, if you're a residential customer or if you're a CNI customer, you just, you just pay for it out of your, you know, your building CapEx, you know, budget for the year. And, you know, it's small enough that, that it has a great payback. And when, when it gets to that point, that's, and, and it's getting very, very close, you know, that that's when it will take off. And, and all of these sort of like integrator, middleman, broker sort of, you know, functions won't even be necessary in the market. So the writing on the wall was basically, you know, we watched, we watched, you know, the next lights of the world and the OptiSolars kind of racking up very, very large utility scale deals. We saw an opportunity in kind of the 20 megawatt range. And we just went in and, you know, gobbled up a lot of those 20s and cobbled together several hundred megawatts of, you know, 20 megs at a time. So we saw a niche where we could pivot to and, and, you know, ran at it very, very hard. For those who are unfamiliar with the Wild West of 2008 in California, who were developing these projects that you guys you know, came in and gobbled up? I presume, uh, and you mentioned the Hudson Clean Energy Investment, I presume you guys were, you and Arno were structuring uh, equity investments to have a treasure chest to go and buy projects from. But, but what was the project development uh, world like at that time for solar? So, you know, we actually didn't buy much of anything. You know, I've kind of prided myself from day one on, on you know, uh, uh, two things. One, I think Recurrent identified very, very early that solar development was very different from gas and wind, um, just in terms of how you built a company. And two, you know, that greenfield development, that, that buying projects usually just like, uh, what's the adage? You, you make money when you buy, not when you sell, right? And so... Most of the projects were that, that were for sale, and it's still true today. You know, you pay someone way too much for having done way too little, <laughs> and 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 those are the projects you don't make that much money on. And so, you know, when we set out to sort of pivot the company, the the goal was to make it um, 
was to build a process-oriented company with people who were a little less um, experienced, but you know, but focused on being hyper-analytical. We wound up staffing with a bunch of very inexperienced people, basically. Um, you know, while others were out, sort of, you know, grabbing the entire development team from an existing wind shop and turning them into, you know, a solar shop. Uh, you know, and doing deals almost like banks take down a whole debt team or a whole, you know, bring people in, give them big contracts. And, you know, it's kind of that rock star developer mentality, right? We didn't do any of that. We, we, you know, I basically went out and hired Luke Dunnington and, you know, Andre de Vilbis and Seth Israel and, you know, half these guys that work for me now still. And, and, you know, we, we built from scratch and we built a team that was very process oriented. Um, you know, we, we were very analytical. We said, you know, here are the four things you need. You know, you need sites, permits, interconnection, and power marketing, right? And in every market you enter, you find which one of those things is in the shortest supply. You do that first, right? And, 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 and so we had a whole bunch of kind of rules and process that we set down and we taught people from the ground up that way. What it showed was that solar was very, very different. Solar at, at utility scale even was very, very different from wind and gas where in wind and gas, you have very, very site specific, you know, like a gas plant has to be built where a certain transmission and a certain, uh, you know, a certain electric transmission and gas pipeline kind of meet, right? The further you go from that, the harder it is to build laterals and things like that. So there's some very specific sites where they make sense. Wind is the same sort of thing, right? The, the density of the resource is is pretty, is much more concentrated than solar. And so those are those are businesses where you really do need that, like, big lead developer who's done the big project before who and you put your head down and you just you just go straight through opposition right in solar it's much more like venture capital you you spray out a bunch of options and then you kind of start to winnow right <laughs> and 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 there's a lot of different places that actually could work and so you know as you hit something that's an obstacle you you don't put your head down and kind of power through it you, you actually are better off to just shut that one off and move on to the next one Right. And so it's a very different process we created. And I think that's what made us successful. Sheldon, every time I have a chance to listen to you, and that includes the last episode that we did uh, with Christian, I feel like I'm absorbing like a sponge, uh, you know, how the power markets work. I really appreciate how you outlined that, uh, that concept that you sit down with this team. And as long as you have a system focus, you can teach them these four things, site, interconnect, permits, power marketing. These are the fundamentals. I imagine that comes from not only the years of work in the NatGas uh, business with Calpine, but taking a look across the spectrum of what's happening. As you said, you guys pivoted from rooftop to utility and distilling it down to, you know, where do projects run in to roadblocks? Do you feel that while that was true for you back in 2008, does it continue to be true? It's kind of an evergreen truth about how the markets develop now or have the fundamentals changed in 2020? You know, the fundamentals have changed quite a bit, and they actually changed during the course of Recurrent, right? Um, at Recurrent, you could take an approach where you you kind of chased after a bunch of smaller projects, you know, which were big at the time, but were still not as big as, you know, the, the next light OptiSolar multi-hundred megawatts, right? So you could, you could sort of spray a bunch of SGIP interconnection applications at the 20 megawatt level, you know, 10 of them. Do incredibly well because you know the 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 margins were were high enough with the costs of the panels falling and the materials falling, um, and the and the ability to lock in 
long-term power contracts, you know, a couple of years ahead of time. And so that business model is, is definitely broken down. And I, you know, I could go into many, many, many ways how, how, how that has changed. I think though, that, that probably the most pivotal ones are that, that really the scale of projects really matters more and more today, because as margins have come in, you essentially, in order to do well in the business, you essentially just have to do bigger projects, right? Because um, your your margin per watt as a developer is much lower. So in order to make it worth your time, you you, you need to go to larger scale in order to in order to compete for for contracts and offtakes at 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 the competitive prices that are there because it's become a much more crowded and competitive marketplace. In order to compete for offtake contracts, you also need to be at that scale. I'd say in addition to that, you know we learned some lessons at recurrent and 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 one of those is just that scale breeds scale which breeds you know a lack of profitability <laughs> if you will and so you know if you have a big team you wind up setting your strategic plan less about how many megawatts you think you can actually do in various markets based on market analysis and more based on how do i make enough money per watt times the number of watts i'm going to put in the ground to pay for my overhead and make some profit, right? And that's that's kind of planning backwards, right? So so you know you get into this spiral then of I've got a I've got a team that's grown too big and because I'm growing maybe fast or something like that, and so I chase more and more five megawatt carports in upstate New York, right? And then that's really frustrating and takes a lot of time and work per watt. So I need to hire more people to do that well, but then I need to chase more five megawatt carports, right? And so it's a it's a death spiral. What we've learned at Intersect, you know, I think is 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 really the lessons learned from the evolution of our careers from from that you know moments in two thousand seven to now. And that is in the current market, if you want to make money and do well as a developer, you know, the business strategy of Intersect is very very simple. It's a small team. It's you know very big projects and very few of them, and that's it. There's there's nothing more to it, and the reason I'm willing to sort of say that out loud, and you know, like because people say, oh, well, you know, that's not hard. We can copy that. But what's unsaid there is that in addition to being a small team, you also have to be an incredibly potent team that has a tremendous amount of experience, because you know it's really hard to have put together a team of 20 people that actually have the experience and capability to bring 1.8 gigawatts to market in two and a half years, right? And, and, and that's what our team has. So, so it's not a strategy that I think a lot of teams can pursue just from, a, from a, a, a talent and experience standpoint. But if you put together the right group of people, that's really the strategy that works in today's market. Sheldon, I'm really grateful for just the detail of the conversation that you have been sharing with us. We mentioned, obviously, that you had this exit moment, this liquidity event that so many of us get into business, certainly those of us with MBAs thinking about. You're among the fortunate few that have had what I would consider to be an early exit, early success. A lot of folks are probably listening to this thinking to themselves, oh, why in the world is this guy even working anymore? With 400 million, he must have made a, a pretty good chunk. Are you comfortable talking about it? And if so, I have a question around like what happened after recurrent, between a recurrent and intersect. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You were an early employee. We're, we don't need to get into like how much you made or, or whatnot, but I think it's important to kind of put a pin in for you when you were able to take a break and sort of pull the parachute from recurrent. Was it like the, the classic fuck you money? Was it like never have to work again money? 
And if so, what did, what did you go and do after that to kind of take the foot off the brake? Or did you, some people never do. I, I remember, I think I remember that you spent some time in Hawaii. Yeah. Would you, would you give me a little bit of insight into how, the, how, how, what, how your life unfolded as a result of the recurrent exit? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, first of all, I mean, I look, I, I tell people all the time, I'm pretty open about it, that, you know, we did very well. We, we, we made, we made our investors, a an epic return on a very large amount of money. And, uh, and in the process, um, you know, we did very well as well. And, you know, I, I, I just like to put it as, you know, I really don't need to be here. I, I, <laughs> uh, you know, I do this, I do this because it's what's interest. It interests me. I'm a total energy nerd and, um, and, 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 and a workaholic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but what I can tell you is that, you know, in leaving recurrent, um, I think it's a little bit of a story of, you know, uh, certain, certainly it'll, you know, it'll, it'll come off as like, I hope it doesn't come off as like a, a sob story because, you know, nobody has a lot of sympathy for people who hit the lottery. Right. You know, so, so, but at the same time, you know, I, I just worked myself to death. I mean, I, I crawled away from recurrent. It wasn't a victory lap. It was a, I crawled into a hole in the ground in Hawaii and, you know, just tried to heal. <laughs> Can I ask a, a probing question yeah. there? Because I think we've all been through it, right? Like I've got an MBA. I've been a part of more failures than successes. Uh, I've never hit the lottery and yet I've had to do my own version of healing. What were you particularly seeking to heal from? So in, in 2009, at the end of the year, early to going into early 2010, I was probably working, I don't know, 80, 90 hours a week. And I had been since like, you know, late Calpine days, just total deal junkie, transaction junkie. You know, that year, I think I flew you know, almost 200,000 air miles, almost with, I believe it was only maybe one international trip in there. So that's, that's pretty brutal. Um, and so, you know, I'd been doing that for, for years. I mean, I, I, I turned the lights out at, at, at recurrent almost every night, you know, uh, <laughs> catches up to you after a while. I, I, I wound up getting very ill with kind of like a viral illness and then ultimately just never really recovered. And, uh, uh, you know, diagnosed with all sorts of stuff. No one really knew, no one really knows, um, you know, from, from, uh, adrenal fatigue, chronic fatigue, all sorts of things. <laughs> so, you know, never really had a satisfying answer about what, what it, what it, what it was, but, um, you know, it left a pretty, uh, permanent mark on me. And I, you know, I've been pretty open with this, certainly inside recurrent. I didn't, didn't hide it. And I certainly haven't hidden it from, you know, the, the story of it from the Intersect Power crew. And, uh, and so for me, it, it really was a, a real, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I'm, I'm burnt out. It really was like, I, you know, couldn't get out of bed kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I, you know, I did the classic workaholic Sheldon Kimber thing and kind of put my head down and grip my teeth and like went straight through it. And, and I worked from, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14 just hoping it would get better and, and it never did. And, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was brutal. I mean, you know, really real, real issues sleeping and, and, and just, 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 uh, a pretty, pretty hellacious, um, experience all over when I left, I, I, I honestly, you know, it was, it was, it was the saddest day of my life. I mean, I cried my eyes out it was, it was like leaving 
a family. I remember kind of the farewell party at, at Recurrent and it was, it was like my greatest failure almost. Uh, I just, you know, kind of slinked away to, to hide somewhere and to, and, and I really felt like um, my career was over, to be honest. Um, you know, I'd made this, I'd made this money, I'd made this success, but at the end of the day, like no one really remembers you. I mean, like the legacy of like a mid-sized business that put some solar in the ground is, you know, you know, you're, you're, no one's going to write about you anywhere. <laughs> and, uh, and, and kind of making, making your peace with all of that, accepting that, that that might actually be the case actually turned out to be kind of a good thing. Um, you know, right. It just, it stripped me, it just, it stripped me bare of all, of, of all the things that you hide behind that you kind of protect yourself with, right. You know, your ego, what people think about you, right. Oh, I'm important. People listen to me, you know, Oh, I have a lot of money, you know, I can do what I want, you know, Oh, I've, I have good ideas or better ideas than other people. You know, it strips you of your conceit and it strips you of, you know, um, your, your, to some degree, all the things that you told yourself gave you worth, but it really didn't. <laughs> and it forces you to try to discover the things that, 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 that did give you worth. Um, and, and, you know, some of those things for me are, you know, obviously everybody, everybody has a family and, you know, my family. I mean, at the time I was just having, my kids were very, very young, um, you know, and, and so there's obviously that, right? Everybody wants to reconnect with their family and have that, that relationship. But, but even in my work, it, it really forced me to say, um, what is it I want from work, right? And, and so moving to Hawaii, I took some time off and really worked on my health and, and, and my health improved dramatically. And then as I got to the point where I wanted to start something new, um, you know, I sort of sat back and said, okay, well, I have been sort of stripped down to like the essence of sort of what I want, what, what does fulfill me. And, and so I actually sat down with, with, um, a woman who had been kind of an executive coach, uh, that I'd worked with at recurrent who knew me quite well. And, um, she flew out to Hawaii and before I started intersect, I mean, you know, most of the sort of core values of the company are actually written on a slide that I wrote with my coach in the context of a discussion that was, what does the company look like? What does the endeavor look like that makes it worth me coming back? And I, I mean, I can tell you, and I can tell you more there if you want. I mean, that what, you know, what, the things, the things that are, the things that I landed on are, they're actually pretty simple. So I actually want to, uh, I want to pull on the thread in two different areas. The first, and I'll come back to the core values because I think that's amazing. You mentioned that you worked on health. I'm wondering if there are any particular tools in your toolkit now that you were given during that time, uh, be they some exercise or, or some other methodology that have helped you maintain a level of health now? Like what were the acute ways that you worked on health and how has that impacted the way that you think about health now and the work maybe, work balance? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, first and, first and foremost, I mean, what you put in your body, right? I mean, so, so I, I'm not, I've never been particularly self-disciplined about, you know, what I eat and the activity I do. And, and what's interesting about kind of the physical, the physical issues I had was actually that the fatigue was such that, um, I actually couldn't really work out heavily or train or things like that. And, and even, even to this day, I've actually been told not to push it, you know, push things. Um, because, 
we as human beings are given kind of a budget of energy, right? And, and, and you can look at that as, you know, and you spend that in three key ways, right? Physically, mentally, and emotionally, right? And you're, you're kidding yourself if you think that, you know, the way that most people in, say, the Bay Area live their lives is sustainable. You will hit a wall. <laughs> and, and so you really have to kind of balance, you know, that whole budget. Um, and so trying to dial back the work intensity a little bit, trying to, instead of running triathlons, try hiking, right? You know, um, you know, it, there's, it's, it's this notion that everything you do has to be intense, right? That's, so intense, I think, right? that's yeah. the disease in our culture, right? That like, if you're type A, you have to work a hundred hours a week and you have to run the Boston marathon, you know, like, like, like and maybe, and, and for some people, that's great. Some people that may be exactly what's right for them and their body and their mind and but it certainly wasn't for me. So finding the balance of that energy that was right for me. Secondly, just, you know, as you, as, as you get older and, you know, wiser, I mean, just, you know, let's just say that like, if you do want to perform at the very pinnacle of what it is you can do, right. If you do want to be, you know, start your own company, be a CEO, do all this stuff, you kind of have to step back and, and look at it like being a professional athlete, right. You know, you don't see a lot of professional athletes who, say, oh, well, I'm just really good because I'm just talented, right? And and I'm going to eat whatever I want and have really kind of like a daisical training and that you look at someone like LeBron James or Tom Brady, you know, and, and those guys, it's all work. It's all discipline. It's all self-sacrifice, you know? And so you, I guess my, the realization I had there too, I guess, habit wise was you kind of get what you put in, right? And so you got to give your body the real fuel. <laughs> You've got to give your body real sleep. You've got, you know, and, and, and so, um, that kind of investment in being the best you can be. So those were the things I did generally. I don't know if you've read, uh, Tim Grover's book, Relentless, where he talks specifically about Kobe and, uh, and Michael Jordan and LeBron, LeBron James, all of whom have been coached by Tim Grover. Have you read that book? I have not. That sounds interesting. You would really enjoy that book, given what you just discussed. Tim Grover is in a class of his own. I mean, he has coached literally the greats of basketball, starting with Michael Jordan. Coached Jordan through his entire career as his uh, strength and conditioning coach. And he tells lots of great stories uh, about what you just said is exactly true. You know, at the time of this recording, at least, I <clears throat> I, I listened to that book last summer. Uh, and at the time of this recording, I haven't made any sort of public comments <laughs> for, for sure on the podcast about the fact that I've gone through something very, very similar uh, as you uh, where, in fact, I thought it was adrenal fatigue and, and min, many other things. And this was the week following SPI uh, last year where we had like a huge successful event with the Podcast Lounge. And then I literally like couldn't get off the couch uh, on, I remember it clears day on October 9th. I couldn't get off the couch. I was, uh, I was just completely done. And uh, I spent, I've spent the last, uh, not I did spend, I have spent the last six months <laughs> recovering. Uh, to, from what appears to be something, uh, if not Crohn's, something very similar to it. But uh, I've been through all of the uh, emotional roller coaster that you've been through. And what you're telling me does not sound foreign at all. It sounds like what many, many of our friends are enduring right now. You know, the thing that I've found similar to you, uh, I'll, I'll share a similar story actually around sleep. Um, but this idea that real, real fuel, i.e. like you are what you eat the food you put in your body matters and real sleep uh, are important. My doctor told me that I needed to sleep 
10 hours a night. And I said, no, you're crazy. I actually have worn a, a, a fitness tracker since 2011. I know that I need six hours of sleep. <laughs> she said, no, I don't think you're hearing me. I'm like you can keep sleeping six hours and you'll keep feeling like you do. But if you want to heal, you're going to have to invest the time sleeping. And cause that's when your body repairs itself. And I was, I was in denial of that for, I don't know, a good month yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at least, at least. Um, and, and you know, what's, what's, What's funny is, you know, denial is, you know, like I've, I've been told numerous times that like, if I were to just stop, because even when I was, when I took the 18 months and sort of moderately, you know, kind of clawed my way back, if I were to just stop altogether, I would probably make an even more complete, you know, <laughs> recovery, but it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to listen. <laughs> I'm not a very good listener. <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, uh, and I know we're going to talk about this a bit towards the uh, later part here. Uh, we're already in the later part, but as we as we continue to progress in this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about your thoughts on kind of what we're going through now with the pandemic um, at the time of the recording, which is presently in, in April. We all know intuitively how to take care of our bodies. Even now, I practice the Wim Hof method, breathing, uh, you know, cold showers, the things that I, I know are good for me. I practice meditation. And I still find three, four or five days will go by without meditating. And I ask myself, gosh, in the middle of a pandemic, if I don't sit down and meditate, when do I kind of get it through my head that this is, you know, this is a core, this is a cornerstone. You know, you were given a gift. You were given an amazing opportunity to move your family to Hawaii and uh, kind of unplug, as you said, for 18 months. You know, that first generation American, uh, that first, that, that kid who saw the opportunity, the golden ring and went for it. He, he wasn't sleeping in the background. He was waiting there for things to feel normal again. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts. So why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy to install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas, learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild where all the videos are posted and lots of solar warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See you on the inside. You mentioned that you brought in uh, a business coach. I think that there's one thing that doesn't get shared enough, at least in the energy uh, business that we're in, is the level of coaching that most executives uh, engage in and and require even. Uh, I'm not at all surprised that you had a coach, but I bet many people listening are. How did you engage with that coach and, you know, how, how was she brought into your world? And then how did you, how do you feel that working with a coach has benefited you? Arno was the person who really 
helped me bring a coach in back at recurrent i mean i was 28 years old you know kind of as the number two in that company you know building and and growing and you know as i mentioned we went from you know uh taking a round of funding to you know working capital adjusted 400 million dollar exit um and uh in in a matter of just a a couple of years and we had you know the two years before that we had spent pivoting and rethinking and uh, you know it was a rocket ride and and i i like to tell people that the actual hardest part of being a younger entrepreneur and growing a company is not actually growing the company because in most cases you know you're smart enough where you've got the skills hopefully and i can do the analysis i can run the numbers i can even manage um but it was it was it's more just the personal growth required. It's not actually the company growth. It's the personal growth required to keep up with it. And that, that's, the, that's the place where a lot of people just fall down. You know, you've got to be open to a fair amount of being self-critical. And, and you've actually got to want to change as rapidly as the company is changing. That came in maybe a couple of years into Recurrent and has been a good part of who I've become. I, I, don't, I don't do as much coaching anymore, although I, we, I do work with a coach regularly, but not as regularly as before, just because Intersect is a family. I mean, we've been together so long, most of these people and I, and, and my, my leadership style is, is just very open and authentic. And I haven't, I haven't faced a lot of the challenges that, that scaling a large group of people and I'm not sure I want to do, you know, a multi-hundred person business again. I, I don't actually find that piece of, the, of of building a business that rewarding. So when you sat down with this coach, you mentioned that you filled the deck with, uh, with core values that to this day are the heart of Intersect. I, I want to understand two things. The first is, can you extrapolate on what those core values are? And the second, obviously 18 months and a lot of healing, you felt this magnet pulling you back into business. So after laying down these core values, why did Intersect need to exist? To preview the second part of the question first, as I mentioned, like, I don't need to be here. And beyond money, I, I, don't, I don't have a desire or a need to build another solar power plant. I built a lot of those. Um, and, and what brought me back was, was the desire to build something different, not just in the, in the what, but in the how. And we'll get into the what in a second, because I, I do want to sort of transition back to kind of the, what makes Intersect different from a business strategy. But in terms of the how, you know, that's really where trying to design an organization, you know, and the core values there. Um, you know, my, my partner, Luke, who was a co-founder with me on Intersect, he was, he was the person I reached out to you know, he had run development for me when I was the CEO at Recurrent. He had gone to Haas Business School as well, and I had hired him right out of, of business school, and he had been with the company a long time. So he and I have a, a, a pretty deep bond that, that goes back a long time and, and, and a real common sense of what we want to build. And, and so I reached out to him and shared some of this with him. You know, we iterated on it really kind of put together the culture of the company before we even put together the business plan of the company. So it's a bit odd, but I think effective. And so, you know, the types of things that we, we, we really landed on were that our mission and vision are more along the lines of, of, of kind of a team of friends just working to preserve the planet, right? For, for, for future generations, for our kids, for each other. That's really, that's really who, you know, who we are and what we're doing. I think 
the vision for the company is when you go beyond mission to the kind of the, the vision, the how, it's it's really focused on being the most innovative and resource efficient and profitable developer that we can be without necessarily being that you'll notice that nowhere in that sentence is the word the biggest or the loudest or you know anything like that right and so i actually don't think there's enough businesses that step back and say what's the most if that accept the challenge of building value with the you know highest return on on invested resources be it capital or labor right and 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 actually that's really the core of the sort of ethos of intersect power we actually take a tremendous pride in the fact that you know in a two and a half year period we went from a gis map and a greenfield you know search you know putting shovels in the ground on 1.8 gigawatts of projects with a team that over the course of that period probably averaged 17 or 18 heads you know you can do the math on what you think our our overhead burn is but i can tell you it's probably you know, on a on a cents per watt basis, our overhead burn is 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 orders of magnitude lower. Almost anybody else in our industry, and we take tremendous pride in that. I would, you know, almost more pride than the you know the scale of our megawatts or 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 anything like that. That's part of the the kind of vision for the company. But then, you know, the the values that go beyond that are are really just about you know people coming first. Some of the the the, the two things I've talked about already, which is just authenticity. Um, you know, being yourself and not feeling like you have to be someone else at work, humility, and then just enjoying the journey, right? Because we, <laughs> at Recurrent, we were always just waiting to hit the next milestone, right? Everybody was just, just driving and slaving for that next milestone. It got to a point where it almost felt like it was just a, a, a just a slog. And I, I look back on it and I'm not sure I ever paused to really enjoy just the magnitude and the, the, just the experience because it was a tremendous experience and i have a lot of nostalgia for it now but at the time i'm not sure i actually enjoyed it for what it was so you know really trying to focus in on having just a lot of fun but we have a company song no way we, really we do we do like Sing it for me. we do little no 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 we do little <laughs> we do we do little like skit comedy things at our holiday party and it's not me you know i'm not organizing this this is these are our people this is this is the 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 quality and caliber and just orientation of the people we employ really bears out the fact that i think they all share these values and 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 kind of um create an environment where where it's not it's not actually hard we don't have like meetings to talk about our values right we're we're the kind of organization that that looks back every now and then luke and i'll look at the values we wrote down in our our our, our deck you know and we'll be like wow it's amazing how well we are doing and then we'll put the deck down and we won't look at it again for a long time we don't have meetings where we kind of remind people here are our values <laughs> you know it's ah, it's just cool. how we live you came back with luke and and you pulled together this world-class team that had performed well at recurrent and who had similar ideals and the goal as you stated was to accept the challenge of building real value with the highest return possible on the on the essentially the smallest team possible to be efficient with resources and and still deploy uh, large scale assets in the in the interview that you did with Christian uh, that we had on episode two twenty nine you know you went into real detail about how you guys are fundamentally focused on uh, what we colloquially refer to as the merchant market you know you were insistent on saying market projects instead of merchant projects you also used. A lot of, uh, let's say, nuanced vocabulary 
that folks probably um, stumble through. So I'd, I'd like to unpack a bit the, the core, some of the inner workings of Intersect, kind of how you view the markets. And I'd like to start with why in you know, 2018 you thought or you, what you saw happening in the markets at the time, 2018, when you started pulling the Intersect team together that led you to believe that the the market price or merchant projects were going to be finally viable and, and why maybe even why they weren't viable prior. Again, I mentioned that Arno, who's again, one of my mentors was, was much, much better than me at being succinct and clear with complex, uh, with communicating complex ideas. So I will try to channel my inner Arno and, uh, <laughs> and be as succinct as possible. But first, firstly, I think, there is this notion that merchant plants are simply plants without contracts, right? And that, you know, you just sort of take a flyer and you accept whatever the market price of power is. And, and one day solar will arrive at the point where it can just do that. And that will be great. I think, I think what that fails to understand is it sees the world in a black and white context where you are either contracted or uncontracted. The business model that most people are talking about when they refer to merchant power or merchant power plants is the business model sort of pioneered by the the you know the the, the Dynagies and the Calpines and the you know Enrons, not so much the Enrons because they actually sold all their assets and became more of a bank than than anything. Uh, but but that model was not about having no contracted cash flow. It was about having a whole lot of power that you needed to sell across an entire fleet of projects, managing risk, much like, you know, the seller of any other commodity, right? And so some of it you lock in for five years, some of it you might lock in for 20, right? And some of it you might just take the market price at the spot price, right? At the, the current spot price in the market. But you overall put together a portfolio across your 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 risk exposure, if you will. If you've got to sell thousand megawatt hours, you know, you might take a chunk and, 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 and fully contract it. You might take a chunk and, you know, 10 year, five year. And, and so it's really just about a risk management approach to a portfolio. That's what the merchant power business model is about. Right. And so that's what we have. We, we just need to understand that that's what people mean by like, you know, merchant power and is risk management with respect to how much you are exposed to the market price of power at any point in time. I think the the insight that we had in our first portfolio is that shorter tenor contracts are actually potentially better on a risk-adjusted return basis than longer tenor contracts in the current market. And I'll I'll dig into both of those things. So by longer tenor contracts, I mean, you know, what people are have been traditionally looking for, you know, 20-year contracts with fixed prices from utilities. Those just aren't even available anymore. To the degree, you know, to the degree anything's out there, it's a 15-year contract. You know, the prices on those have basically gotten so depressed that if you are offered a, a the opportunity to contract your plant for 15 years at 20 bucks a megawatt hour or you know low 20s, but you can go and get $35 a megawatt hour to contract it for five years, you do the math on that, but you know, almost all almost as much revenue, let's say 80% of the revenue you would have gotten in 15 years, you can earn in five to seven, right? And so why would you not prefer be sitting there in year seven 
with, you know, whatever, 75, 80% of the cash you would have had at year 15, another eight years of exposure, for sure, right? You're, you're definitely riding the merchant curve at that point. But, you know, you have to have a very, 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 you know, risk averse perspective to believe that in, in years, you know, eight through 15, you're going to not make that 25% back. And so that, you know, to, to come out ahead of your 15-year contract. And so by, by, by signing those low-priced 15-year contracts, you're just essentially locking in your loss. And so this is the, I guess, insight. I mean, it's not an insight for anybody who's worked in gas-fired power or the traditional power industry. This is just business, right? And so, you know, what, what, we, what we, this is, I guess, sort of the first place where when I say I, can, I didn't come back to Intersect to do the same thing again, this is like the most basic form of that innovation, if you will, right? Which is to try to bridge what the equity owner's expectations have been, which is, hey, I can get in and make a 7 8% unlevered on a 20-year deal to try and bridge those expectations to help people understand. No, actually, now that's probably like a, a 65 7%, you know, or a 6% unlevered, 7% levered, right? On on a on a 15 year deal. And so to try to really bridge that expectation to hey guys, solar is entering the real energy markets now and you really do need to have a view uh that you're the owner of a portfolio of megawatt hours that you're going to actively manage the risk on over the life of the of the projects, right? And that's really what we tried to begin to do in that first portfolio. We still had some long-term contracts, but you know, we began to push that edge and and continue to were there market forces at play that didn't exist in 2010 uh, or perhaps discuss the dynamics of banking uh for for renewables projects in 2010 compared to 2020 that help uh, softbank get comfortable with uh, you know a 1.8 gigawatt uh portfolio that is inherently tied to more market risk than it would have been in 2010 like how how did the asset owners have they changed the way they th think about these things? And what fundamentally do we have access to by the way of data in the market that makes it a different argument? Well, I think a couple of things on that. One, I mean, you, you have to understand that I'm not making the argument that project with a seven-year contract should have the same IRR expectation for an investor as one with a 15-year contract, right? So, so, you know, if you were to look at, if I've got a 15-year contract at 20 bucks, you know, maybe the investor is buying it for seven and a half unlevered, you know, and, and whatever, eight and a half levered, you know, I'm probably selling my seven year contracted plant for nine and a half unlevered and 11 levered, right? Or 11 and a half levered or 12. So, you know, what, what people have to understand is that uh, the class of investor that's coming in may have to be just a, a fundamentally different class of investor. But it's not that they're not out there, right? There are plenty of people who, in the low double digits, and they understand commodity risk, and they understand power markets, and they've been investing in gas-fired assets and other assets for decades, and this is what they want. I think what's happening is, you know, all those people who went out and raised whatever it is, pension money or, or other LP money, and told them, hey, I can go get you X billions of dollars worth of you know, six to eight percent on levered, high single digit levered. Those folks are kind of out of luck if if what they're looking to do is deploy that in utility scale solar. 
because that just ceases to exist. And so, you know, when you look at someone like a SoftBank, I mean, it's not like they're not getting compensated for the incremental risk they're taking over what they might have bought in 2010. Uh, that said, I mean, it just just to be perfectly clear, the portfolio that they bought is not, it, it still has a, a, a fair amount of contracted revenue in it. Um, we, we were, let's say, only beginning to test the bounds in that portfolio. I think I think now what, what we're looking to do next is really find partners long-term who agree with us on that investment thesis, right? Who, 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 really, who really see what we see about where the future of this solar asset ownership is going because the opportunities are there now. And in five, 10 years, this is just going to be like any other power market. And, you know, you're going to be chasing you're going to be chasing after deals that have, you know, weighted average, you know, contracted, you know, like contracted revenue, you know, whatever, seven, eight year range and 12% IRRs, right? Those are going to be good deals. <laughs> and, and, and there'll be a lot of people who want them. And so, you know, you, don't, you never made any money by, by, by following people. Like only, only for a little small window of time there in, in the, you know, in the California RBS market, did a group of people make money following folks who had already made a bunch of money in investing in solar. And and I'm not sure how much that's going to be possible anymore. As we see this migration, this transformation or change in the buyer profile, who are the types of buyers that will own solar plants in three, five, 10 years? Well, I think you're, you're already seeing a, a whole lot more sort of private equity players who for years have gotten comfortable taking the risk on, you know, buying more mature gas-fired assets and things of that nature that might only have, you know, short-term capacity contracts and maybe, you know, the ability to hedge, you know, five years or so of of of, of revenues. You've seen deals like that in PGM and in ERCOT. And and those deals, you know, they 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 typically are structured that such that they they pay off pretty quickly, right? These people are not hanging out for 35 years waiting for their money back. You know, and and their return expectations for taking the risk are are in fact you know low double digits you know you start getting into that kind of 11 12 13% range and these pe shops are 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 likely going to be some of the people that you see showing up and 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 you are seeing them already showing up other players i think are are going to be folks that have you know a lot more understanding of commodity risk so you know there are already a handful of players who play kind of financially and they buy and sell power or gas or other commodities who who may be willing and interested in stepping into actually owning some of those assets um, that can actually manage the risk and trade around the assets. So it's a whole, you know, it, it's it's everything old is new again, right? I mean, good entrepreneurship, you know, and, and, and good business in general is all just pattern recognition. It's so interesting because I take for granted the things that, that we're talking about because my entire uh, utility scale career was in Latin America. <laughs> And it's interesting, right? Like I hear what you're saying and I'm thinking, oh, like, yeah, of course we see large multinational utilities as well as hedge funds that are willing to take market risk, that are doing contracts for differences, that are um, willing to think about different types of swaps and and spreads. And and it requires having a complicated trading desk mentality that had had been absent for a long time in the renewables markets or certainly in the solar markets, maybe perhaps perhaps not so much in, in the wind markets. It's really, it's really interesting. And the reason I bring that up is because for those who maybe are unfamiliar and are thinking about how do I learn more about this, like just take a look at other international markets where competing head to head with conventional 
plants with you know, effectively market pricing, uh, as we've seen throughout Latin America, including in, in particular Chile and Mexico, there's a lot to learn outside of the U.S. market as well. Everyone today, including SIA, talks about the solar plus decade uh, that we're now you know, formally in 2020. Next 10 years, we're going to see solar plus. A lot of the people in the markets put that plus as storage and storage has been that thing that we've all been looking towards uh, from a cost curve perspective to say this is what's going to really unleash the power of renewables. You and Christian talked a bit about the value of storage. I'd like for you to unpack it for me in a way that maybe again channeling your inner Arno here, but you you discussed the concept of a 1224 shape and turning that into a 716 block. I think that not only myself but many others probably could get lost in that vernacular. Could you unpack the value of storage for us and how you see that uh, providing leverage in the marketplace moving forward? You know, if you look at your average power market, right? When you look at a, a standard quote, it's for usually for kind of a peak block, right? Maybe a, a seven by 16. So, so seven days a week, 16 hours a day. And that's, that's going to be, you know, that's your standard traded product. It's a commodity. It's priced by everybody. Most of the time it's pretty liquid, right? So there's not a huge amount of, of spread between the bid and the ask necessarily. And, and, and so it's a, huge amount of volume done on those standardized products, you know, in California and Texas and in other places. The problem is that, you know, every PPA that's been signed for kind of the utility PPAs in California and other places are just sort of what are called as generated, right? So whatever the generation profile of your asset, so solar puts out eight hours a day, let's say, right? Um, with With a nice healthy peak in the middle of the day on sunny days, that profile is what is coming out of those plants and the kind of RPS type contracts are just forced to buy that profile, right? Which made it really easy. There was no real risk to, you know, being caused to either to the, to the developer or to the owner of the power plant, because there was no mismatch between what was being purchased and what was being produced, right? It caused a heck of a lot of of risk to the utilities, right? Because you know, their load didn't look like the solar shape, right? And thus you get the duck curve, right? That's where the duck curve comes from. Um, the utilities all have purchased these as generated contracts and their load doesn't look like that. And so storage really provides the opportunity to to solve the problem, if you will, that many of those as gen contracts created, right? And and for 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 lack of a better term, I'll borrow the sort of the what is now at the time of recording the 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 phrase on everybody's lips, it, it flattens the curve. You know, it, 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 it can take you from being, you know, what is, what is an eight hour shape, right? And it can push the shoulders by storing. So you take that peak and you cut the top of it off and you move it into the shoulders. And so you take what wasn't a very sort of like triangular eight hour shape and you make it more of a rectangular, you know, 10, 12, 14 hour shape. The more you can do that, the closer you make it to being a really highly liquid, right? Easily bought and sold, commoditized or, you know, very standardized product. And, and the more you do that, the more valuable it becomes. So I'll give you the example that if you were to go and try and sell a solar shape, you know, you might only get paid $25 a megawatt hour, right? Depending on what, what tenor you're selling, whether it's a 10 year, eight year, 15 year. If you were to go try and sell 
for the exact same tenor from the exact same location, try and sell something that was more like a standard seven by 16 block, you might get paid $35 a megawatt hour. And so the difference in value is enormous in most markets. And as more renewables penetrate the grid, it, it only gets bigger. And so you know, what you see is, you know, people want new subsidies for storage. But what's really interesting is actually that the, the subsidy for storage is the subsidy for renewables. Um, and I'm not arguing against subsidies for storage. I'm, I'm just trying to point out that there's a really interesting dynamic, which is all the subsidies for renewables that have caused this overbuild in many markets of renewables, they now act as an implicit subsidy for storage, right? Because the value of storage the ability that it has to flatten that curve and take a less valuable shape and make it a more valuable shape, you know, that that is basically an arbitrage, right? And that arbitrage opportunity is created by the solar subsidies. The beneficiaries of that arbitrage opportunities are the developers, manufacturers of storage technologies because they can capture, they're the only technology that can capture that that difference between the shapes. I've never heard anybody put it quite so well, and I may say succinctly. <laughs> there you go. Arno would be proud. <laughs> I have a feeling that you're going to want to hit rewind uh, a couple of times here and go listen to that again, yeah. Solar Warriors, because the, the complexity, you know, there's, there's more that you need to study and, and probably wrap your head around if you're just starting to look at solar and storage to even be able to, you may, may need to come back in a month or two and listen to Sheldon's interview again, but... But for those of us who've been in the market for a long time, uh, the way that you just enunciated that makes perfect sense uh, to me. And uh, I'm, I've never quite heard it said that way. So I really appreciate and thank you for that, that particular angle on it. And, you know, I love that last piece. The, pe the people who implicitly benefit from that arbitrage are the storage manufacturers because nobody else can take advantage of the arbitrage. I was going to say, I should go back and listen to it because <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe, maybe that'll help me uh, make, this, make the point more succinctly going forward. Just one more follow-on point on storage, and that is, I do think it is, you know, it is the, the decade of, 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 of storage. And I, I do, um, I, you know, people ask what the power market looks like in the future. And I think as you get more and more viable sources of storage, the power market basically begins to look like some wind. A whole lot of solar, you know, a ton of storage, and essentially a kind of firm or dispatchable renewable grid. But you're always going to have to have some amount of gas to set the price because there is no marginal cost. You always need some some remaining sliver of gas that will essentially set the price in hours where you know the the, the firm renewables kind of don't clear the market. They don't, they don't have enough to, to meet this, the, the demand. So there'll always be some sort of backstop gas to the market. But that's, that's, the, that's the end game. You know, people often ask me, what's the end game? What does this all look like? You know, how, if, 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 if firm renewables take over the market, how do you set a price, right? Because <laughs> there's no marginal cost. And so, you know, I think that's where we're headed. And, and I, I, I'm still a little unconvinced that lithium-ion um, and current storage technologies are really where we're going to wind up. I, I, I'm still waiting for the, the the much much larger scale and more utility appropriate flow batteries. And you know, you were asking one of the what are the things that intersects looking at next, and what are we excited about? You know, why am I here? I'm extremely excited about hydrogen. I'm very very excited about green hydrogen. And and you know, people think that I've rewound the tape back to the the 
George W. Bush administration and, you know, I'm going to build the hydrogen highway. That's not it at all. I have a real bee in my bonnet, if you will, for retrofit technologies and finding ways to put, to bridge the clean energy uh, gap as between, we seem to be able to decarbonize the electric sector, but how do we take that success and move it into other parts of the energy value chain? Because, you know, there's a whole bunch of carbon that we can't reach yet. And, and hydrogen is the bridge between the two. And, and you don't have to put it in cars, you know, you, 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 can, you can put it in heavy trucks and airplanes and, and, and ferries. And when you say green hydrogen, just so that I'm clear, you're referring to utilizing the electricity generated from, from renewable resources to catalyze hydrogen, basically to pull it from water. Yes, primarily, primarily through large-scale electrolysis. The beauty of it is it becomes a drop-in replacement to a lot of other fuels at that point. You can, you can do some sort of methanation. You, know, you can pump it directly into gas pipelines. You can mix it in with you know, natural gas, which is primarily methane. And you, know, you, can, you, know, you can burn it in gas turbines, right? I mean, how many gas turbines on Earth are set up to burn hydrogen? You know, and how many can be retrofitted to it? As a little bit of a side, my, I have a hobby horse of sorts about like, I love electric vehicles. I own an electric vehicle, but when I really look at like what 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 can happen to deeply decarbonize the transportation industry, I'm not sure that electric vehicles can can be can completely replace the current fleet fast enough to actually make a dent uh, before we all ruin the earth. And I think that example plays out across a lot of sectors, and we really need to be finding these kind of bridges that allow us to. You can't just sit back and say, oh, we're going to replace all the world's infrastructure in the next 20 years and save the world. you got to find ways that to find bridge fuels, if you will, or bridge strategies that allow you to utilize 100 years of you know, electric and industrial infrastructure that we currently use you know, in a cleaner way. What habit or consistent practice, maybe it's a personal daily practice or maybe it's something you institute in the company, has had the greatest impact on the way you work? My, my habits are such that uh, I don't really have any habits, um, I, I, you know, which is a bad habit, right? I mean, I just, I don't, I lack really any off button for good or for bad. That's been good for me in a lot of ways, but, um, but bad for me in some pretty terrible ways. Um, and so I lack a lot of self-discipline that would, that, that is required to probably institute some good habits, <laughs> you know. Again, that's good and it's bad, right? I, I would like to say that, that that will change, but you get to a certain part of your life and you just make your, you make your peace with the fact that you're trying to mitigate for the bad habits you have, right? And so um, I, 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 try to, I try to do some of the things to take care of my health and my, my, my life uh, that I mentioned earlier. And otherwise, I've, I've accepted that I have a, a lack of self-discipline and a certain streak of obsessiveness that really defines me and it's a superpower and it's the worst possible part of my personality all at once. And I'll, I'll, I'll just have to live with it. You know, I believe that readers are leaders. And I wonder if there are any books that you'd point to that have given you a particular shape to the way that you lead or that you gift because they mean something to you. And what might that be? Probably the best book that I recommend to everybody is my favorite book uh, of, of all time, <laughs> an, an author uh, by the name of Ethan Kanan, who I'm not sure if he still does, but for a long time ran the Iowa Writers Workshop, probably one of the best short story writers in, in modern times, in my view, and wrote a book named Carry Me Across the Water, which, uh, which is just a short, it's a, it's a short novel 
um, I would say it's the closest thing to sort of um, F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of great American novel, you know, that I've read in in modern writing. It's super tight. The prose is incredible. It's like he could, you know, he he picked every spare word out of it, and and it's also just sort of staggeringly beautiful. The reason I would recommend it, I mean, like if I had to tie it back to, you know, if I had to try and link it back to my leadership style or. It's just that it's a it's a beautiful story about kind of like a, a, a an older man reflecting back over the course of of his life and and it's you know it's a pretty epic life. I mean, it involves World War II and a, a bunch of other stuff. But but you know, I I think it's important to kind of live your life and ask yourself sort of what you want to look back on, right? When you're watching the rerun of of, of the movie when you're older, uh, what do you want it to look like? And um, yeah, and and so. It's a beautiful book. I would highly recommend it to anyone, um, though it has very little to do with most of what we just talked about. My apologies for that. No, no, that's completely that's completely all right. Yeah, I, I wonder, Sheldon, because I know that you uh, you do you know you read a lot, not just books. How do you inform yourself most often to stay ahead of the curve? Uh, where do you find yourself gathering information? And how do you learn best? You know, I mean, I think there it is really, it, it still is books, right? Because I, I mean, I think it's very, very tempting and I'm, I'm, I'm the worst at it. Like I'm, I'm not judging anybody else, but it's very tempting to read the web, right? And, and we as a society are getting to a point where there's, you know, you, you get a, the, the most superficial of, of information possible, right? A lot of times. And, and so even if it's a book that's not necessarily in the realm of what I'm thinking about professionally, it, it, things that feed your brain and get you to think, you know, beyond yourself. You know, for instance, I'll, I'll give you the example the probably the book that has caused me to think as I did in college or as I did in grad school, which are these, you know, periods in your life that are great gifts that most people don't realize at the time, right? Because they just allow you to think for a living. Uh, the, the book that has put me in that mindset most recently is, um, is Sapiens. That really spoke to me and really just a eye-opening sort of, you know, turn the world on its head sort of approach to thinking about human civilization through that lens. And, you know, with that, with that in mind, kind of been reading quite a bit about like artificial intelligence. I'm an avid Wired magazine reader, have been since like the late 90s, sometimes great and sometimes not so great uh, as a publication, but, but I still read it. But I, I guess I just try to put myself in that sort of like futurist mindset, if you will. I don't have much time for, you know, considering myself a futurist or anything like that. I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a thing, <laughs> but, but trying to think deeply about what the future state of things might be is productive, not because you're going to be right, but because it stimulates, you know, the things that are going to drive you forward. Well, Sheldon, I, as, as we have done for a couple of hours here, could go on and on. And I want to I want to give you back the rest of your day, but not before I ask, uh, how can folks who would like to reach out, learn more about you, find you or follow you, where would they do that best? Well, I tried my best to hide out from the world, but um, <laughs> uh, the probably the best way to find me is feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I have a Twitter account and, uh, and uh, you know, tend to, tend to post mainly about um, my family and other things on my Twitter account, but uh, Intersect Power uh, has a Twitter Twitter handle. Intersect Power and myself do a lot of posting on LinkedIn around professional topics. You know, there'll probably be a link to things like this and other talks and 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 white papers and things uh, on LinkedIn. 
And so those are the those are the sort of cheap conduits for you know what I'm doing, what we're what we're doing, what we're thinking. If you reach out to me on LinkedIn and, and there's something more specific, you know, it might take me a while to get back to you, but I can uh, potentially give you an email and a, 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 a better way to chat with me more directly. And last, but certainly not least, let's end today, Sheldon, with uh, a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I would say that as solar becomes the cheapest form of energy on earth, if, if it isn't already, on a per MMBTU basis equivalent, right? I mean, even cheaper probably than fracked gas, you will, you will find yourself positions where most of that energy may or may not go on the grid. And so hydrogen is just the beginning of that, right? So I think you're probably going to start seeing things along the lines of, you know, siting industrial facilities near cheap energy, near, near, near solar plants, right? You're going to see, again, conversion to forms of stored energy, be it, you know, hydrogen or others. I, I just think that the thinking about solar is strictly in the context of the electric power industry is, is going to change over the coming decades because you simply are going to have too much, very, very cheap energy uh, for it not to find its way into other parts of, you know, industrial and energy value chain. Sheldon Kimber is CEO and founder of Intersect Power. We have been on a winding journey today with him and so grateful to have him back here on Suncast. Sheldon, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Nico. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I am saturated. How about you? Was that phenomenal for you? It certainly inspires me. Thank you, Sheldon, for sharing your journey with us and for inspiring us and many others to reach for the stars. The energy transition is in full swing and entrepreneurs like Sheldon help you and I see the possibilities and navigate the startup world with greater insight and courage. If you're not familiar with our Suncast Guild, our inner circle of entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs and apprentices on the path to mastery, then go check it out in the member area at mysuncast.com. We'll be giving that a refresh here in this month as well. For a limited time, you can still join at our legacy price, but that'll be changing come July. I'd love to hear from you. What topics and guests should we have on the show or on our LinkedIn Live events? Hey, speaking of live, be sure to be following me on LinkedIn so you don't miss our next trainings and webinars. And lastly, please do join our free Facebook group, The Energy Guild. You can network with hundreds of other clean energy professionals and get access to exclusive live trainings, mentorship, guild-only guides, and more. I hope you'll tune in next week to get the backstory of another reason. Tactical Tuesday guest, SIPA's Director of EV Research, Erica Myers. Until then, remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.